And there was, you know, probably about 20% of the stuff I enjoyed doing, 80% I probably didn't enjoy doing. And being made to do all that stuff that you don't really want to go and do, it's like, you know, that was completely the wrong career for me. But the whole thing about finding those things that you love doing, nobody needs to tell you to do that. When you get in that zone, then, you know, you're more creative, you're more in flow. And that will leave things that you don't want to do, but then someone else will love doing those different things. So for me, it's almost sort of, you know, tearing up traditional um, corporate roles and saying, okay, for each individual, what's the thing that you love doing, that you're brilliant at doing? Let's get you doing more of that. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you. Hear their struggles. And then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. Casper leads a fulfilling life and helps others, particularly corporate leaders and corporate teams, do the same. What's his expertise? How has he found purpose more than other people have? He did it by sailing around the world with his family. They had to figure out their narrative, their purpose, what they were doing it for. His leaving the corporate world made him more valuable for the corporate world. Were his choices easy? No, he had to figure these things out by acting with his family, no different than anybody else. It's not easy, but he did it, and that's why he's so valuable for them. It's also why someone like him is valuable for environmental action. It's not easy. You have to think about these things. And only by acting will you realize how much you love it. After you do, you'll be a leader. We talked about educating children outside the regular system through curiosity. It turns out children, actually everybody, learns more when starting with what interests them, just like what motivates people to act environmentally or any other type of following. Telling people what to do doesn't work as well as asking them their interests and connecting those interests to a task. I hope you hear from him to change things on the scale in your life as he did in his. He's no more or less human than you are, and so what he did, you can do. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Casper Craven. Casper, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you. It's great to be here with you. Great to have you. And I'm bubbling over because I really want to, there's so many things. I'm, I'm partly, okay, first of all, you stopped doing the corporate life and you went around the world with your family, three small kids. I think the youngest was two when you started. And people who listen to this podcast know that like, I stopped flying a few years ago and sailing has become a really big thing for me. And part of me wants to monopolize this conversation and just ask specific questions that are useful just to me because I've been offered... I'm going to go right into this and then we'll get to you. Okay, absolutely. Because <laughs> sometimes asking specific questions and getting specific, oh man, you do a lot of uh, public speaking as well. And I'm really curious how much of that trip translates into corporate interest. I imagine a lot of it and a lot more than people, a lot more than someone might expect that you went away from the corporate world, did family stuff, and now you do a lot of public speaking. Uh, let's ask that. Do corporations benefit a lot from what you, from that experience? 
totally. Because like, look, it, it's life, right? And um, life is uncertain. Life is uh, changing the whole time. And the key thing is how do you deal with that, right? The business environment is changing faster than ever right now. And when you're on a boat, especially with your three kids and your wife, and you've got uncertain changing conditions, how you build the team to, to take that on, how you respond to that, there are really direct parallels to business. So when I go and do my talks, I take people through a sailing story. And then I say, when I was in my business, exactly the same thing happened. And here's how we dealt with it, both in the family situation and in the work situation. So it's a, it's a really clear parallel. And I love the whole thing with a boat, right? Because you're out there in the middle of the ocean and uh, you, know, you can throw your hands up in the air and say, I wish I had this or I wish I had this. But you've got what you've got, right? Yeah. <laughs> so deal with it, right? And, uh, and figure out the answer. So it develops resilience and resourcefulness. So there's a lot of really powerful metaphors and lessons in there for sure. And I, I bet it must feel delicious being in front of the whole audience. And they're, they've been working, working and getting good grades and getting to the tops of their field and never doing, I don't want to say too much, but I bet some of them have never done what they really want to do. And then you're someone who's just left that, did something you really wanted to do. Of course, super challenging, life-threatening. I mean, people get injured on the boat and yet they're paying you to help them do their job better, even though leaving it improved your knowledge of how to build teams, how to be resourceful and resilient. Yes. Well, it's interesting. So, I mean, one of the things that I think is super important, there's two two things, right? There's getting success in business and at work, and clearly that's important, but there's also creating life fulfillment. And for me, that's uh, whether that's with you and the partner, whether you and a family, whether you and your own. And that sort of quest for fulfillment, I think is uh, super important. And the road that I was on before was I want to get business and career success first, and then I will go and get personal fulfillment afterwards. And it was completely the wrong way around because then it was life on the deferred life principle. So what I try and encourage businesses is to say to every single person in your organization, what are the things that you want to do that are personally fulfilling for you? And it will take some time to make those things happen. But I had this instance with different people in, in my business where I asked them what's really important to you. Why are you in the room? Why are you in this organization? Why do you care? And I think if you can help people to uncover and go towards their personal purpose, and you know, like 0.001% of people want to go and sell around the world. But, you know, that's not like um, a thing. But it's, um, it's just helping each individual find personal purpose. And I think if the organizations that do that those are the ones that are attracting the people. Um, you know, we always hear about the purpose-driven organization. And uh, for me, that, that's helping people connect with what's truly important to them. And what's different for, is unique to every single person. So when I stand in front of audiences, it's, yes, how do we make your business more successful? But at the same time, for each individual person, what's important to you, right? Why are you here? Why are you in the room? And the most enlightened organizations I work with are asking that question to their employees. It's like, why are you with us? Why do you care? And when you get that alignment with personal purpose and corporate purpose, that's when I think real magic happens in an organizational world. And you, I mean, you said 0.01% of people want to sell around the world, but five years before you sell around the world, you didn't know that you wanted to sell around the world either. (laughs) So yeah, well, we uncovered that over a, I mean, I'd, I'd always wanted to go and sell around the world, uh, but my wife did not. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we had to spend a lot of time co-creating the narrative of how we wanted our future to play out. So back in the day, uh, my wife always refers to the fact that we were living like one centimeter away from our faces. 
and just immersed in like, you know, current career progression, building the business, paying the bills, taking the kids to school. And that was all we saw that was right here and now. And when we suddenly projected and said, okay, what does the future look like? What's a future that excites us, that gives us real purpose and real meaning? And through the whole process of discussing what was important to both of us, that was the thing that emerged for us. And in that five years to making that happen, that was when I think I contributed most to my business and I became the best business leader I've become. I added most value. I empowered more people in my team because I then had a personal purpose or we had a personal purpose as to why we were doing that. I wonder if you can tie in, I believe that a lot of people sit and think and try to analyze and ask themselves questions or they download questionnaires off the internet of like how to find what their purpose is or how to find what career is right for them. And the more that I teach entrepreneurship and teach people to take initiative, the more that I find that acting, like simply thinking about it will not get you there, that you have to act on it. And a lot of people are stymied. They're inhibited by what I consider two sides of the same coin. This is, I, I want to say the same problem in two different ways. One of them is I don't have an idea to act on. The other is I have too many ideas and I don't know which to act on. And I find that if you've, several different things to act on. I find that the most effective way, and you're scared, like, what if I act on the wrong one and one day I wake up and realize I've married the wrong idea and the right idea is off there and I can't get it back. I find the best way to get to the right idea or the best one for you, pick one. If it happens to be the right one, great, you're happy. If it's not, it's the fastest, most effective way to get to the one that you love. And that when you do get to the one you love, if you spent time on one that you didn't love, you will look, you won't look back at that time with regret. You'll look back on it with gratitude at having brought you there. Like, you know, it's funny, as you were saying that, what was going off inside my head, one of my favorite songs of all time is the, uh, the song uh, Sunscreen by Baz Luhrmann. And uh, there's a wonderful lyric in there, which says the most interesting people I know get to the age of 40 and still haven't figured out what they want to do. And I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit past that now, but I'm very much definitely in that category. And for me, it's just that process of iteration. And it's all about the process of, you know, trying to discover what's really important to you. And it's trying different things and uncovering stuff because we get, I think, tied up on that thing. It's like, it's got to be one thing. It's got to be perfect and it's got to be right. And, you know, that thing, I think, inhibits decision-making. So it's just that iterative process. Try things. If that doesn't work, we'll try something else. If it does work, we'll do more of it. So it's, uh, yeah, I would say, you know, think, think um, like a scientist, right? You're just continually running experiments and, uh, you know, seeing, seeing where you end up and finding things that really resonate with you. What do you see in the corporate audiences that you work with? Do they get that? Is that something you have to train them in or are they skilled at that or do you see, is there variation? Great question. I think that probably I see more um, organizations probably in the US than in Europe. I think that, that, that is changing. And more what I would say, purpose-driven organizations, really clear mission. Why do we exist? What are we all about? I think the organizations that are in that camp are much further down the track of sort of you know, helping everyone sort of uh, find a personal purpose and are much more open to that um, debate and dialogue. So that's kind of like the way I see that. So. Yeah, because I have a feeling corporations don't get it very, don't get it as much. I guess there's more at stake and it's easier to do that yourself than with a team. Is that part of also what you talk, the difference between making a decision like that to try something, you're not sure where it's going to go, you're willing to iterate or walk away if it really doesn't work out. Doing that as an individual versus doing that with a team, 
I mean, with a team when it's your family, that's even more intimate. Is it a big difference there? So one of the things that I'm fascinated with is the whole interplay between uh, work and home. And I have this great belief that whatever you do to thrive at home is exactly the same things that make you thrive at work and vice versa. So I'm all about taking corporate principles like um, vision, mission, values from work and saying, how do we apply that at home? How do we become, because those are really, really strong principles and saying, you know, how can we make those work at home? And then principles from home. So, you know, caring for people, building on people's strengths, taking those back into an organization. I think there's really powerful uh, principles that work both ways. So I think if you get comfortable doing those um, things at home, then it's easier to take them into work and, uh, and vice versa. So I definitely see um, that duality between the, between the two different things. I'm almost reading that you have taken the, taken down the barrier between the two sides and it's not even, am I reading too much into it that you, you, the duality is gone for you, that you've just meshed them together? Totally. I mean, it's that whole thing, right? You don't have work life, you don't have a home life, you've got one life and how you do anything is how you do everything. So just um, applying those principles in, in both places, I think uh, makes it easier to understand. And so, all the, so a lot of the companies that I work with, I say, you know, take this idea of mission, values, direction and sort of you know go and do that with your families right go and uncover these uh, these really important things which are driving all of you and have that discussion once you do that at home environments then it makes it uh, much easier to do um, in the work environments so now i don't see and you know the most some of the most successful businesses that i see are ones that act like family and there's that genuine care for the the people inside the organization and you know things shifted for me when i was building my business when I really started to care about all the different people beforehand, it was all money and numbers and corporate driven, all that sort of stuff. And that shift when people genuinely feel cared for, I think there's so much research says that's the number one motivating factor for any employee is, you know, that the person uh, who they report to genuinely cares about them. So um, it, yeah, it's those, those principles definitely work both ways. When you're talking about bringing these principles home, I couldn't help but think about education and your kids out there. And I've had a couple of guests who are very big in self-directed education. And so I don't know if you have Sudbury School in Massachusetts, but it's, you know, I do project-based learning and experiential active learning when I teach. And then I learned about this whole style of teaching that some homeschoolers get, but not all, that is, the students come out much more resilient. They learn much more. And you look back at the fact-driven, you know, testing on recall as just not teaching what is useful later in life. Yeah. Can you talk about the, how did the education, educating your, your kids go? Yeah. So, so when we um, set sail from the UK, we had, um, we've gone and spoken to all the um, kids, teachers at, uh, at their schools. And we got really clear on the, uh, on the English uh, national curriculum. So the, the, the set um, things that we had to follow to keep our kids up to speed with, with what was happening. And we kind of got about three months into our passage. So we're working our way down the Atlantic. And we just found that it was virtually impossible to teach our kids in that structured way because it was taking a huge amount of our time and energy when we had to do other things like sail a boat and navigate and stay safe and, you know, all that, all that good stuff. And, uh, you know, there was two of us and three kids. So uh, we're outnumbered from the get-go. <laughs> so what we did is we turned it on its head. And I think we got the kids to start getting curious. And I think that's the most important thing for, for, for me around the education. 
And we asked the kids, what are you interested in? What do you want to learn about? And you know, one of my favorite examples is my son, um, whose name is uh, Columbus. He said, look, I'm not interested in learning about history and kings and queens. It's just like, you know, that's the factual recall stuff. I'm just not interested in it. But he was fascinated with the natural world and uh, biology and fish. So we just fed that curiosity. And that uh, took him in so many uh, different uh, directions. So all the different uh, countries and places we went to, he would just actively seek out um, knowledge. And it's interesting, I know we, we met up um, um, some months ago with a previous guest on the show, um, Sir Tim Smith. And uh-huh. um, so he was talking to Columbus about the 17 different types of rhubarb you get around the world. And, and like, he, Columbus is just fascinated with that. And so his identity, his um, story, he's like, He's a scientist and he loves biology and he loves chemistry and it's just ignited this huge fire inside him, but only because we asked him what he was interested in. But that, that interest has taken his learning to all different subjects. So when we started to catch fish, he was weighing them, he was measuring them, he's drawing pictures of them, he set up a business making and selling fishing lures. And I think, you know, we had the benefit of having that one-on-one time with kids so we could indulge that curiosity and really, really feed it and find amazing people who could, like, Tim, like Sir Tim Schmidt, who could continue that interest. And that was the thing for us that really ignited stuff. So when we came back from two years away, the kids went back into school as if they hadn't been away. And literally, they just didn't skip a beat. They just carried on even though we've been educating in a very different way. So um, that curiosity was right at the heart of it, just getting that, the imagination fired up. It reminds me of this quote by John Dewey, uh, the educational philosopher and practitioner. He said, kids are always full of questions and curiosity, except in the classroom. <laughs> and like we, I'm curious if when they got back after being learning in the way that you guys learned or taught or educated them, did they, you said they didn't miss a beat. Did they, were they bored in the class now or was it like disappointing or was it awesome again? Did they like being with their friends? So certainly my oldest. So we, she was nine when we left and 11 when we came back, she missed her friends. And at that sort of stage for a girl, I think that sort of, you know, friends are starting to become um, probably more important than parents at that stage. <laughs> but the, I mean, I wouldn't say they, they got bored. I mean, it was just different things for them to stimulate their mind. So actually, so my wife went to, um, to the parents' evening for, for Columbus, you now um, 12, um, literally uh, last week. And, uh, you know, they're saying, it's like, you know, he sits at the front of class, he asks great questions, he's curious, he's interested, he wants to know more. And particularly, again, in those subjects that, you know, he's, he's most uh, identified with. So, I mean, when I say they didn't skip a beat, maybe track back a little bit on it. There were a couple of areas where they were behind because we hadn't focused on that. But the interesting thing was their resilience and how they approached that. Because we had a couple of scary situations and our kids seeing how we responded to not knowing things and how do we figure it out was, I think, a really important blueprint that we have shared with them. Because I think most parents shield their kids from challenging times, whereas mm-hmm. you know, they were there in the boat with us and they could see what was happening and how we responded and what they copied was super, super important. So um, I think that that's another, you know, I think came from to the resilient side of things. There's something inside me says that that's going to show up in their lives like 20 years from now still of that type of learning that some kids never get, but that's a whole other topic. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, I'm curious, then, you're showing a lot of passion 
And I'm curious if it's, is your goal to help companies, is it to help people, or is it that to bring uh, a style of living? Is there anything driving at all? Or what do you do? So it's interesting. So I'm 46 now, right? And when we came back from the sailing, it was just over two years ago. Uh, I started uh, standing on stages and telling stories and, uh, you know, sharing some of the insights and things that we've been talking about here. And I have to say that I found that the most purposeful thing that I've ever done in my life, to be able to take a room of people and for an hour to share stories, to share insights and leave them in a fundamentally different place afterwards with a different set of beliefs, a different set of ideas about how things are. And I realized that everything I'd done until that point in the working world was interesting and, you know, it was serving a purpose and it was adding value. But this was just an entirely another level. So all the businesses that I started when I came back, I killed all of those and said, I'm only going to do one thing. Um, So we're doing this with my wife now. We run this this mission. It's called The Brave You. And we said, for the next 25 years, our mission is to inspire millions of people every single year to put family first, to create a really powerful family story. And I use family, by the way, in the broadest sense of the word, whoever's most important to you outside of uh, work. Create that story and use that as the the fire, the driving force, the reason to go and get amazing and develop the skill sets of whatever, whatever areas are there that are important to you in life. And, you know, we only happened upon this by accident. And we, you know, the stuff that we followed literally changed everything in our world. And what's lovely is seeing the people who come through our workshops and events and training and so on, seeing the effect on them as well and how it's creating change in their world. And literally, I've never found anything quite so addictive. So my wife and I said, look, we've got something that's quite cool here, so we want to do this at scale now. And that's why we say for the next 25 years, that's it. We're all in on this. So that's our mission. That's our passion. So I heard that when you came back that you discovered this purpose and acting on your values, and that leads you to inspire people. Now, just wanting to inspire doesn't mean you can inspire. So I guess is Acting on that purpose, was it, has there been iterations on that? that are you, I presume you're more skilled at it now than you were a couple of years ago. Hopefully a little bit more. But he, um, I mean, the thing that, um, that struck me was just the feedback from audiences. So it didn't start off with the idea that I want to go and inspire. It's like, I'm going to share some stories, share what we've learned. And then the feedback from the audience is saying, wow, that's amazing. I'm inspired. It's given me different ways to think about things. So it's like, oh, okay, so there is something that's pretty cool here. So that's what's really driven us forward. It's been the, um, the response from people engaging uh, with what we're doing. Okay, so you came back and you found purpose and passion and acted on it. And that led to the inspiration because the first step was the storytelling. So it's acting on it enabled that. Yeah, I mean, this is, you see it over and over again and people don't get it that you, you did something that led to something that you really liked if I'm reading right, the, the sailing, the spending the time with the family, then you realize there's something here great to share. And then you did your best to share at the beginning. And the, that led to how to do it more effectively. The first thing. Exactly. And we're just iterating forwards now. And it's saying, okay, what's the best, best way to share the messages and the book is out there and all that sort of stuff. But uh, yeah, it's, it's having an impact, right? You know, you always ask those people sort of, well, so I, I sailed around the world um, in 2000 on a competitive yacht race and um, the, the gentleman who, um, who ran that was a guy called uh, Sir Che Blythe. And I remember when he interviewed me for that race, he said some words to me which like, anchored like deep, deep inside me. 
And the words were, he said, there'll come a time, Casper, just before you draw your final breath, when you're looking down at your toes, and you ask yourself, have I done everything that I want to do in life? And he said, if the answer's no, you're going to be pretty brassed off. So stop messing around, work out what you want to work out what you want to do, and go and get on with it. And that's literally been my driving force ever since. So when I ask myself that question, it's like, you know, what's the impact that I want to have? And, you know, we've done some cool stuff together as a family, and I love that, and we continue to do stuff. But actually impacting other people, it's, um, I guess, yeah, my new addiction for the <laughs> one word, and the one that, that we're all in, all in on. So Yeah, you said addiction a couple of times, and, and that reward that you get, it sounds like you said, like when you said we're having some impact, I took that to mean you're hearing back from people and that hearing back, that sense of hearing gratitude from others. Some people think, oh, you want to do it for the praise or the gratitude. That must be vain or, or something like that or insecure. I think, I think we humans, because this is my theory, I can't prove it, that as social creatures, we probably get a very deep, re- if I try to help you, but it's not something that you really want help in, we've all had that experience. Someone tries to help you and it's like not actually useful. That messes things up for everybody. But if you get a, a thanks back, the gratitude back, that tells you it wasn't just me thinking I'm helping you. You actually are being helped. And so I think that sense of reward is one of the greatest senses of reward of someone expressing the gratitude to you. Josh, I'm, t- I'm totally with you on that. And like, you know, when I started, there was definitely an ego past this, right? I'm on stage, right? And I've done all this cool stuff. And it's like, I want to tell people about it. But then it quickly goes beyond that. And so I, there's, a, there's a lovely story which um, a gentleman called Sir John Rowling uh, shared with me a little while ago. And he runs this, um, this uh, organization that's transforming education here in the UK, doing an incredible job. And he told me the story of two British prime ministers. Uh, one was um, Gladstone and uh, the other one was Disraeli. And someone met both prime ministers, and par- paraphrasing the story, and they left one prime minister thinking, wow, he's amazing. They left the other prime minister thinking, wow, I'm amazing. Mm-hmm. And it's that shift, right? And I don't want to go stand on stage and everyone say, oh, yeah, he's amazing. It's like, I want to go yeah, have an impact so that people think I'm amazing and I can now go and do all these other things. I've got these ideas. I feel empowered. I've got some strategies that I can actually go and make a difference. I believe that it's possible. So it's definitely a shift around that. So now I'm going to give you a chance to help me. <laughs> I've, I've been so caught up in this, in asking about this, that I, I, I left off the, uh, the selfish questions that I had. And yeah, definitely actually, them. I, actually, I found that when, when I am in front of an audience, when people ask questions, I find it very useful to say to them, if you have a broad general question, you may think that the broader and more general, the more helpful it is for everybody else. But actually what people actually connect with is the most specific question actually about your life you might think that those details aren't useful. And so if someone asks a broad question, I'm like, do you have a specific problem? Let's talk about that. Yes, yes. So I'm going to do that. So I, you know, last November, I went to the summit. I don't know if you know this, this event. It's like a kind of Ted slash Burning Man slash Davos event. And so I went there and it was in LA. So I took the train across the country and back. And I've been working with them on helping them increase their sustainability and less pollution and so forth. And for the 2019 one in November. And in passing, they said, okay, we want to have some events with you. You're going to lead some events. And I'm like, great. Sounds great. And they said, too bad you can't make it to the one in Mexico in May because you can't fly there. And I go fly. That's a boat ride. And a little while ago, they came back and they said, you know, we might have a budget for you. If you can get a boat to go there and take a couple other people with you, 
and then have an event about that and share how you got there by boat, then that could be a, a yet bigger thing and there might be a budget for it. So when I hear someone say there might be a budget, I'm like, that's the magic words. <laughs> yeah. And now I'm talking to someone who sailed around and presumably you're in touch with lots of cruisers. I don't know. But to get for, I can take a train or they have a sponsor Mercedes. And so maybe I can use, uh, if I can get Mercedes to donate an electric car for a bit. I can get down to Miami or I can get down to New Orleans or, or Houston, but then going across the Gulf of Mexico, hmm. by any chance, do you know anyone who's got a boat that could fit like, I don't know, a dozen or two dozen people, or maybe, I mean, possibly smaller to go from the U.S. to Mexico and back. And probably they could get to, they participate in the event. And it's a really awesome event. That's an interesting question. So first question is what time of year? So it's in May, I think it's soon. So it's not like, and, and probably will have already happened by the time I get, this gets through the editing pipeline. Uh, so for all those people at home, sorry, you can't get on. It's already happened probably. But um, yeah, I think it's May like 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th around there. And I guess it would take a week to get there, four or five days. I don't know how long it takes to get there. And, and then I have to get back. So the first question I'm thinking about is hurricane season. And uh-huh. uh, what, what, so, so basically there are you know, certain, certain uh, set times when you go and, um, and navigate through this. And I'm just, I can't remember precisely. I have a feeling that may be around that time of year. So all the boats from the, from the UK come across, or from Europe, come across the Caribbean in November so that is definitely avoiding hurricane season. And then I'm just thinking back to our timings. So that was, we were in the Caribbean until um, we went through the Panama Canal in February. So that was all fine. So hurricane season comes after that. So that's the first question to sort of, because um, there won't be any boats going anywhere <laughs> or significantly less so if it's hurricane season. Mm-hmm. So I need to check that. But I think that's probably not a million miles away from us in terms of timing. So that's the The second question then, where in the U.S. to where in Mexico? Well, the U.S., could, I presume it would be Miami or New Orleans or maybe Tampa on the, the Gulf side of, of uh, Florida. I could get to Houston. So there's a lot of boats based in, uh, in Florida. And then from there to going down to the BVIs and Caribbean. So that is um, that there is more um, sailing traffic coming out of Florida. I don't know in detail, but that's uh, the, the memory that I have. So that, that area of Florida and um, around there is probably the best starting point if you're going to do that. And where do you have to get to? It's Tulum, Mexico, which is, um, I don't know, it's almost, it's, I don't know how to describe it. It's like on the pointy tip of that part of Mexico. I don't know how to describe it. <laughs> is it on the Caribbean side or on the Pacific side? Oh, Caribbean side, yeah. Caribbean side, okay. So, um, so yeah, so if it's avoiding hurricane season, there may well be boats that are um, coming down there. So my boat's over in San Francisco, so I'm on the, I'm on the wrong side totally for you. So it's, because <laughs> that sounds like a fun trip, right? And um, yeah, so, so the honest answer, I don't know, but I can certainly ask and I can uh, find out. So there are organizations, um, so the World Cruising Club and various other things that, um, you know, you can, I can go and ask and, um, and just see whether that's a possibility. So. Okay. If you come across anyone who's willing and able and interested in, and can participate in the, in the summit, it's, I'll send you the link to the page, to, to the event page, and it's really cool. It's an interesting idea. And it's like, you know what, it's crazy ideas like that, that sort of grabbed me as well and say, you know what, this would be kind of fun to do, right? So Exactly. You know, when I stopped, when I gave myself the challenge, actually in a couple of weeks, it'll start year four. So once I, I found out how much pollution flying caused, I didn't, I wasn't comfortable with that. 
And I gave myself a challenge based on previous challenges I'd given myself. Every time I gave myself a challenge that went against comfort and convenience, but in the direction of my values, yes, it was hard for a very sh- much shorter time than I expected. And then became not just easier, but much more enjoyable and much more rewarding. So I said, can I go for a year without flying? It was only a couple months before it went from being like, this is going to be hard to, oh my God, I didn't realize how much of life I can create for myself instead of, of course, if you get on a plane and, and drop yourself off in some crazy place, you're going to have an adventure. You can also create these things. And I really thought day 366, I was going to be on a flight. And now I'm like, that's just been holding me back. I mean, of course, if someone had, if I could magically transport myself to someplace, I'd, I'd love to travel. But I really like living by my values more. Yes, yes. Yeah, no. I think we spoke before, it's like the whole thing about um, Davos, wasn't it? When the, um, there was the Duchess story and it sort of called out all the CEOs who'd sort of flown there by helicopter, right? And saying, like, you're part of the, the problem, not part of the solution. And it's like, you know, we need to be thinking about this. So it's exactly that question. It's like, you know, how can we uh, you know, have an impact? I was just, today's what, Monday. On Friday, I was at a symposium based here at NYU. And it was a sustainability innovation uh, symposium. So that means from 12 to 6, it was like big speakers and breakout sessions and, you know, the typical thing. And everyone there is interested in sustainability. And so the final thing, it ends at, the last presentation ends at 6. And then from 6 to 7, there's wine and hors d'oeuvres. And the last speakers, all of them talked about the problems with, you know, lots of environmental problems, but certainly talking about plastic, plastic pollution, single-use plastic, how it's banned in lots of places, how we should not use it, how it's messing up everything. And then the very last, and, and everyone in the audience is like clapping and clapping. Yes, of course, we got to get rid of all the single-use plastic. And then the last speaker goes up and then the, one of the organizers goes up and says, we've had a great conference. Thank you all. And we can do this. And now's the time, you know, have some wine and, and meet with each other and make things happen. And I look over at the bar. And there's wine bottles and big piles of plastic cups. So I like go over really quick and I say, do you have any glasses? Because I want to set it up so that people aren't using these plastic cups. And they're like, we have no glasses at all. It's only plastic cups. I'm like, do I want to engage on this one? I'm like, no, I'm not going to engage on it. I'm just not like, I'm not going to get the wine myself because I'm not going to have the plastic cup and there's no alternative. And okay, there's hundreds of people in this room. As far as I could tell, not a single person showed any sign whatsoever of any issue of using all this plastic. And there was also, um, there are cans of other stuff. There's all single-use stuff. The people who are just applauding and just saying, we can do this. If, you know, don't use it if you're not, if, you know, they're like, I don't know if it was lack of awareness or lack of, I don't know what happened, but this, to me, this, it's not even a lack of leadership. It's like anti-leadership. Because if they all said, we're not going to drink it, then it all would have got sent back and they would have said, well, this is not acceptable anymore. But they didn't. They abdicated any responsibility at that at that time, as far as I could see. It's like complete disconnect, isn't it, between the conversation and, and then the reality and uh, what's actually happening, isn't it? So it's, um, well, I would say I, it's, fasc- it's fascinating. The, in, in our world, my son, he's the one who's holding us to account. And he's saying, it's like, this is a single-use plastic. Why are we using this? So like, why are we getting stuff that's been flown in from here? And why are we getting the stuff with all the packaging? And he's the one who's driving the conversation with us, which is fantastic, right? Because that's what you want. You want you know, kids to be sort of, you know, really engaged with that because that, that, that puts pressure on you as parents. Yeah, for me with my PhD in physics, I, you know, I went into science because, uh, you know, the beauty of nature and that's what motivated me among many things. And I think the role of a scientist today, as much as I wanted to follow in the footsteps of Einstein and Galileo and Newton and Feynman, I think given our environmental situation today, 
scientists understand a lot of it. They're not particularly effective at leadership, but I think the the biggest role for a scientist today is in, I think, transitioning from observing and measuring. That's very important, and I hope that we keep doing that. But we're way past the threshold of knowing what we need to know, and it's helping make that information usable and influencing people to act on that because we're not doing it. And as a scientist myself, I think that's the most important thing for me to do. And so when I hear that your son is not just studying, but in today's world, acting and hopefully effectively influencing others, that reinforces to me of what a scientist, the role of a scientist today. Yes, yes. And it's, yeah, everything you said that. I mean, it's like the, I think one of the, the biggest things is the, um, the education piece, right? Just giving people access to simple things that they can go and do, which actually have a, a long-term impact. I remember speaking to a lady who, um, she is different, different subject, but she was advising uh, the US government on healthcare. And so one of the things that she was doing is encouraging parents when they were teaching kids to brush their teeth, was holding their kid, the head, kid's head underneath in their arm and getting them to lean back and them showing how to brush their teeth. And the implicit thing with that was getting the kids used to lying back and someone sort of, you know, doing stuff with their teeth, preparing them to go to the dentist because apparently you know, a lot of kids go to the dentist, get fearful, don't want to go and create a whole sort of set of things. Whereas actually just little simple things in behaviour and just conditioning people to stuff. That's a small nudge that has a big impact further down the line. You think, you know, 50 years from then, 60 years from then, all the dental impacts, and suddenly if you can do preventative stuff just by simple behaviors, that makes a big difference. I'm glad you talked about not just knowing, but doing, because that action is, to me, the biggest thing. And talk about little things in the way that I think a lot of people say, these little things add up, if enough people do little things add up, but I, that may be the case, although I'm kind of skeptical about that. But what's more important, I think, is that the little things enable you to do big things. Yes. And it's the big things that count. And little things are the pathway to the big things. Because if you don't do the little things, if you think straws are too, too small to matter, it's not that the size of the thing, it's the skills that you learn and then apply. Yes, yes. Yeah, no, I mean, it's funny, the um, two things spring to mind there. One is, you know, how you do anything is how you do everything. And if you mm-hmm. become thoughtful about one thing, you're more likely to become thoughtful about other things. And so then extending that, that whole thing about anything that happens by accident can be made to happen a lot more on purpose. So when I see our kids doing the stuff with that, it's like, how can we encourage more of that behavior and really feed off that and say, okay, how, you know, how, how do we create something that's not just about the straws? It's not just about this, but uh, you know, encouraging and uh, it, it positively influencing those behaviors to, to be larger than just, just the individual thing. So this sounds also, the environmental interest sounds also, maybe your son is the one holding you accountable and directing or pushing you, but it doesn't sound, I mean, you're not a parent who's like, oh yeah, he's going through a phase or something like that. It sounds like there's something that it's resonating with you as well. Totally. I mean, it's um. So one of the things that, that we are um, doing is, so we're, we're a great believer in, uh, in, in it, the whole thing about habits. So we have different habits charts, which we try to cultivate as, uh, as a couple. So things we should be doing more of. So, you know, cold showers, meditation, all that sort of stuff. And just to ingrain those routines, but just literally ticking them off every day. We do the same thing with the, with the kids as well. And the thing that we're um, linking their pocket money to is to say, you know, if you raise five issues every week or five instances 
where you can uh, make a difference to single-use plastics, reducing your carbon footprint, you know, having a positive impact on the world, then those are five points which count towards your pocket money. And so it's just giving them a financial incentive to think about that so that it just becomes a naturally ingrained behavior. So, so that's, yeah, that's something that we are doing with our kids as we speak. So. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable, join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. I'm curious what's driving it, though. I mean, it's, uh, what's the passion behind this? I mean, it feels like it's very connected to your family, but maybe it's also the sailing. I don't know. What does the environment mean to you? So two things. So one thing was when we sailed across the Atlantic from the Canary Islands to the Caribbean, we took part in a research project where we were collecting um, bottles of water at different points across the ocean. And there were 100 boats doing this as well. So literally we collected between us hundreds and hundreds of bottles. And they were measuring uh, the amount of uh, microplastics uh, in the ocean. And before we did that, we went to the lectures and talks about this. So it was getting the kids just to think about this issue and then to be involved in it and then to see the research and stuff that's coming out of that. So that definitely planted a seed. Then going seeing all these different places around the world, and some places they have a lot of plastic pollution, other places they have very, very little. So literally experiencing that um, firsthand. So that planted seeds. But actually, I probably have to give the biggest credit to you for this, actually. So I know when we, we spoke before, and you said about, you know, what are the things that you might do? And that just fired a whole conversation in our family about, you know what, that whole thing, it's not enough just to talk about this. What are we going to do about it? And that was what was behind the thing with, with the pocket money. Let's encourage the kids to do this. Let's create the story. Let's create a conversation. Because, you know, what is it? This is the single biggest issue facing the world, right? It's climate change. So um, if we can't make an impact on that and the whole plastics thing at the same time, then, um, you know, it, it, it's impactful and makes a difference. And if through the, the people who are sort of engaging with what we do, if we can encourage other people to do that as well, then, you know, that can only be a good thing. So that, that's, like, I guess, the kind of the, the seeds of the journey. So, so And how's that going? So you've been doing that for, when we spoke before, was it? It wasn't quite a month ago. It was a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a couple of weeks ago. So um, it was literally the, um, by virtue of coming on and speaking to you today, that has what has driven the conversation. I'm a great believer nothing ever happens without a deadline. So uh-huh. my wife and I, we were talking about it yesterday. And I was saying, what, what is the thing that we are going to do that is going to make a difference? And my son has been you know, talking about this for many months now. So the actual drive has come from him from the things he's been learning about and things he's been learning at school and so his his was the instigation and that's the thing it's like well tell you what let's take what he's doing and build momentum around that because um you know that that if we can get the kids engaged then we're all engaged and it's going to be uh, much more sticky if everyone's involved in it so so it just started correct so i can't really ask how it's gone so then we can we, we schedule a second episode to hear how it's gone. Absolutely. Uh, how long do you think it'll take before it, before the effects kick in? Or, I mean, I'm sure it'll be a lifetime, but... Yeah. 
I don't know, maybe a um, couple of months. I mean, just to sort of really start having some impact. And because the key thing is, so it's my, my son who's um, 12. He's the most engaged, but I want to get my 13-year-old engaged and also my six-year-old to make sure the ripple effects are happening um, from this. So, um, so yeah, so maybe a couple of months and just sort of, uh, you know, just see how that, that, that's going and the, and the impact that it's had. And maybe talk, you know, maybe get them to share some stories about what they're doing. Oh, well, that'd be cool. Me, so it's... <laughs> All right. So after we, after we stop recording, then we can schedule that or, or maybe by email. And uh, so it sounds like I instigated it. Are you doing it because of me or because of like, what's... So you planted the seed in, in our minds. You mm-hmm. raised the question that it's not just enough to um, talk about this stuff. You've got to do something. And um, so it's been a fascinating conversation. And it's like, yeah, that'd be what you say about this is exactly right. And because my son was already doing this, it's like, okay, great. Then, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of fits pretty well. So there's a, a little piece inside me. I'm going to, I don't know how this is going to sound, but I'm going to share it anyway. <laughs> that, see, I want to reinforce, one of my big messages is that environmental, acting on your environmental values. And I think everyone in the world, even if you're the head of some petroleum selling, refining, burning company, and you believe the best thing you can do for the world is to burn fossil fuels as fast as possible. You still care about fish, uh, mercury in your fish. You still care about plastic on the lawn and stuff like that. And so it's, it's a given. I believe that it's a given that everyone cares something about the environment. And everyone likes the, what, the stuff that they care about. They like acting on it. And so if you say, if you do something to act on your environmental values, then I'll, I'll reward you for it. There's a slight implication that they don't want to do it. Or maybe in the case of children, they haven't experienced it. And so you want to give them the experience. And then once they experience it, they'll like it. And so... Something inside me is saying, after a little while, you switch over and say, I believe that you're going to like this so much that when you come up with an idea, you have to pay me or else you have to keep it quiet. And it's hard to keep it quiet. And so the the, the reward, how do I put it? It's so rewarding that it'll overcome even having to pay me for it. Yeah, no, I th- yeah no, it's, it's, it's a good point. I mean, I think the what we're looking for here is accelerators uh-huh. to uh, really sort of ingrain the behaviors and uh, what is what is going on and it's funny you know we so a lot of the stuff that we do um, around leadership both at home and at work is all around values and so we have this set of values which we co-created and we used to do these reward system where I'd hand out uh, bars of, uh, of chocolate for it but then it basically just flipped to stickers and actually the conversation became more important than the actual thing. It's that public recognition that you're doing something that's cool. So actually the monetary thing kind of disappears, but it's actually sort of, you know, actually this is a conversation that makes us all feel good that we're doing something that makes a difference. So um, I think that's the direction it will head in, but we'll see. We'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll check in. And It reminds me of this company or, or a nonprofit that I volunteer for and it's, they put solar on schools. So schools have a lot of roof space and, the, and it's a little harder in New York City. This, the ratio of school sp- uh, roof space that's usable is very, it's very small. But to help us out, they would say, here's all these resources. And you can, you know, they talked about one student at one school where the, everything was going really slow. And the, so the school, the student, very resourceful, made a letterhead that looked like it was official, but wasn't really. So he wasn't deceptive. I mean, it was not really deceptive. Anyway, so he got bid, on his own, got bids from these solar installation places and eventually got the program started. And then his little sister ended up got the program finished and they had this story and they were using it to bolster 
that if, if the school does this that stuff, then there'll be energy independence and they'll make, uh, they'll save money and all these, now all these things were, in my view, I would lump under extrinsic motivation. Like, yeah, they'll save money, but the school, it's not like, it's like district funds. It's kind of abstract. And I said, I asked them, this student, where did he go to college? And he went to Stanford. Now I think this had something to do with him getting into Stanford. And it, it did like, you know, he wrote it up. He wrote, this is something I did. And of course, Stanford's like, well, that's more than just getting A's. And I'm like, this is what to like, yeah, it's nice for parents to know that you're helping your school save money. Yeah, that's kind of cool. Your kid might get into Stanford as a result. Like that's a, that to me is much more deeply rewarding. And I was like, that's the story to tell. That's like the thing that anyway. So it's weird when people talk about money and, and things that are kind of nice in the abstract, but it's really like, I predict something will emerge from this that will be, and you know, no one could predict and it'll be beyond what anyone could have predicted. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And no, it'd be interesting to see what, um, just, yeah, just, just to see how it plays out and, um, you know, where it takes the kids, um, kids minds. I mean, that's what I think is wonderful about kids, right? And that whole thing of, um, you know, imagination and, you know, what are their ideas? And sometimes, you know, I sit down with my kids and, um, my, my six year old, she's, um, She's sharing with me these uh, YouTube videos that she's watching, and she's learning how to make uh, an ATM machine using cardboard and motors and all these sorts of things. And it's like, where on earth did that come from? And she just, like, discovered this stuff on her own, and it's, like, caught her imagination, and her story is, I'm a builder. And she builds things, and she creates things. And she's six years old, and it's like, no idea where that came from but I love it. And uh, that's the whole thing, right, about harnessing the, um, the energy and the idea of kids that, um, yeah, it could take us in, off in all sorts of uh, different uh, directions. So, um, you know, it's that, it's that whole curiosity, right? So. Does this also appear in your corporate work? Of Because it sounds like this is you and your kids, there seems to be a parallel also with managers and leaders delegating and giving authority to others and engaging them to do things that the, you could never lead them to do but you could unleash them to do, or if you unleash them, they'll do things that you never could have come up with and probably beyond what you could have tried. hundred percent. I mean, it's the, um, you know, the whole thing, right? The, you, you build on people's strengths. What do people love doing? And I remember when I joined corporate world and I trained as an accountant uh, back in the day, and there was, you know, probably about 20% of the stuff I enjoyed doing, 80% I probably didn't enjoy doing and, um, being made to do all that stuff that you don't really want to go and do. It's like, you know, that was completely the wrong career for me, Mm -hmm. but the whole thing about finding those things that you love doing, nobody needs to tell you to do that. When you get in that zone, then, you know, you're more creative, you're more in flow. So, and that will leave things that you don't want to do, but then someone else will love doing those different things. So for me, it's almost sort of, you know, tearing up traditional um, corporate roles and saying, okay, for each individual, what's the thing that you love doing, that you're brilliant at doing? Let's get you doing more of that. Because that's when people become engaged, infused, inspired, and go further than they would have done anyway. And as I say, you then just recruit for the gaps and you fill the gaps because there's, you know, we're all different and we all enjoy doing different things. And that was certainly the process that we used to turn my business around by just, you know, finding that, that passion for each person inside, inside the organization and making sure that it was linked to the purpose. What's the organization that we would feel proud to have created? So connecting up on that emotional level, what's the story? Where are we going? Why do we care? 
and you know what's our part in doing all of that so um so that, that that's how, I, how it fits together in my mind so now to enable people to do this there's your book there's are the courses for individuals or is it for corporate only you have courses online so courses online. So, um, and actually we're just in the process of releasing more, but uh, predominantly um, the courses are for individuals. Uh-huh. They can go and take them um, themselves. So the whole thing about, you know, how do you create a narrative for your family team? How do you create values for your family team? And so those sorts of things. So both company and individuals. So. Okay. And I'll put the links up for people to follow to get to the book and the courses and your site. And I want to keep continuing, but we will have a second time so we can pick up here next time with the added experience of how things go with your family. And uh, I like to wrap up with a couple of questions. Of one is, is there anything anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up? And the other is, is there anything you want to say directly to the listeners this time? Awesome. So, um, is there anything you didn't um, bring up? I'll uh, I'll let that uh, question sort of uh, roll around in the back of my head while I'm answering the. The second one about uh, anything to ask the um, the listeners. I think that if you have um, kids, if you have young people in your world, what can you do to get them in, in fired up, engaged, and enthused with you know issues of the world? Right, you know the climate change, the plastics, the stuff that that we're doing. If anyone else wants to play along with this. That would just be awesome, right? So, um, I mean, I think what we're going to be doing, by the way, is we're going to be um, doing sort of Instagram, Facebook feeds and stuff on this, and uh, we're going to be sharing our journey. So um, if anybody else wants to come join in, go do that, basically. So um, uh, that, that's what I would yeah, ask of anyone sort of uh, listening to this. Is there anything we didn't cover? Um, no, nothing, nothing sprung to mind. I mean, I'm, lo- I'm loving the conversation. I'm looking forward to holding myself to account uh, when, when we next speak. Me too. Casper Craven, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I happen to be recording this now after our next conversation. He sounds like he's ready to go, full of enthusiasm. You'll be surprised at the results in the next conversation. Spoiler alert, hint. He's more human than you think. If you think it sounds like it's going to be easy for him, listen to his next episode. But I find leadership based on authenticity more effective than giving some Disney version that makes it sound easier than it is. Anyway, you'll hear in the next episode. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse, and living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.